0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: The reason the coatings are interesting, one reason they're interesting, is that the areas of jet plane impact and fire in the World Trade Center towers match very well with the areas of fireproofing upgrades in the years just before 9-11 the upgraded fireproofing was applied via a coating process to columns and floor deckings in the buildings. As you can see from this comparative diagram, the floors match up exactly for the North Tower and somewhat well for the South Tower as well. Of course, while the upgrades were going on, the floors were off-limits, you would assume, to most people, and a number of activities could have been accomplished relative to implementation of a demolition plan. The tenants in this area had all made other structural modifications in the exact areas of impact, according to NIST. And it's likely that more than one type of explosive was used in the destruction of these buildings. So these activities, including the fireproofing upgrades and other modifications reported by NIST, should be examined.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Kevin Ryan. Today's show, The Emerging Science Around the 9-11 World Trade Center Destruction. Kevin Ryan began to investigate the tragedy of September 11, 2001 through his work as site manager for a division of Underwriters Laboratories, or UL. He was fired by underwriters in 2004 for writing to the National Institute of Standards and Technology, asking about its World Trade Center investigation and UL's work to ensure the fire resistance of the buildings. He now serves as co-editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies and board director of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. He has co-authored several books and peer-reviewed scientific articles on the subject. His latest article is Evidence for Informed Trading on the Attacks of September 11th," published in Foreign Policy Journal. He spoke at Keene State College in Keene, New Hampshire, on September 12, 2009, and Kevin Ryan.
1: I'm glad to be here in the beautiful state of New Hampshire. I'm from Bloomington, Indiana, where I work as a chemistry laboratory manager. But before that, I was the site manager for Environmental Health Laboratories in South Bend, which was a division of Underwriters Laboratories, or UL. I've been working in and managing chemistry laboratories for 20 years. And today I'm here to share important information from an independent investigation into what happened at the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. This investigation is part of, part of what is called the 9-11 Truth Movement, which is a grassroots effort that includes many people from around the world who understand the importance of learning about what happened that day. My talk today will cover three general areas. First, we'll look at the destruction of the World Trade Center buildings in terms of questions about what happened, official answers given, and the evidence ignored. Then I'll discuss my experiences in, uh, in how I started in, uh, questioning 9-11, including my employment with UL, where I was fired for publicly speaking out about the World Trade Center investigation being conducted by UL and NIST. Then we'll look at three mainstream scientific articles that I have helped to produce that include the points of agreement with official reports, a paper on environmental anomalies at Ground Zero, and then the more recent paper that uh, details the discovery of explosive materials in the World Trade Center dust. I'll also mention some of the uh, work that is going on for the future, and I'll be glad to take questions at the end. We should start by noting that September 11th was a day of many unprecedented events. We saw the first total failure of our national air defenses four times. We know that insider trading occurred, but no insiders were ever identified. And we know that the entire U.S. intelligence apparatus and military chain of command failed for various reasons. But the events at the World Trade Center... We're unprecedented in a number of ways. We know that no tall building has ever suffered global collapse due to any reason other than demolition. But on 9-11, there were three such events. No building exhibiting all the characteristics of a demolition has ever not been a demolition. And 99... of the evidence was destroyed despite severe criticism from the public and fire investigation experts. A close look at the destruction of these buildings leads us to understand that these events were not just incredibly improbable, but also counterintuitive. And if we're able to uh, believe the official myth, these events would have also violated the laws of science. In short, nothing has ever fallen through the path of most resistance for any reason, before or since, Yet we're told that on that day, three skyscrapers did so at nearly free-fall speed. Uh, A lot of people are not aware of the third skyscraper. This is it, uh, World Trade Center Building 7, or the Solomon Brothers Building. This building was 47 stories tall, making it taller than any building in 33 states, and certainly taller than any building in New Hampshire. It was not hit by a plane, and yet at 5.20 in the afternoon on 9-11, it fell through the path of what should have been the most resistance. It kinked in the middle and collapsed inward. You can see that at the top, falling vertically and symmetrically in six and a half seconds. Additionally, some very powerful and secretive tenants occupied Building 7, like the CIA, the Secret Service, the Department of Defense, and the New York City Office of Emergency Management. Also, there was the Securities and Exchange Commission, which on that day lost many of the most important documents related to fraud investigations at NROD and WorldCom. There are many incredible aspects to the fall of Building 7. Numerous people were told this building would come down, including 60 firefighters and 25 emergency medical staff. They were told to leave the area, and some of them testified to a countdown, and many testified to explosions going off. Additionally, both the CNN and BBC networks reported that this building had already collapsed 25 minutes before it did. That's true. That's incredible, not simply because they predicted which one other building would fall of all the other possibilities in the area, but because no one could have predicted the sequence of events that led to this building falling, at least the sequence given by the official report. After seven years of waiting, NIST finally put out its official report on Building 7, and it says that normal office fires caused fully fireproof steel to fail in one area of the building, and that's what led to this entire structure falling as it did into a neat rubble pile. Note that neither UL nor NIST argues that UL, my former company, tested the steel components in World Trade Center 7. It's actually in the report. But if we were to accept that NIST World Trade Center 7 report, we would have to conclude that no tall buildings are safe from the possibility of total unexpected collapse due to small office fires. So this, if this is a tall building, don't go running, screaming from the building at, at this point. We'll, we'll get through this. We won't go into the details of the official reports today. I'll simply mention some key points and move on to the new research. However... We will see that a good deal of the most critical evidence has never been covered by the official investigations. The first point of that evidence is that the incredible low probability that the only three instances of a skyscraper suffering global collapse due to fire occurred all on the same day and all in the same place. There have been many raging building fires, much worse than existed in any of the World Trade Center buildings, but no global collapse has ever resulted from those fires. There have also been buildings hit by jet planes without falling. But we're told that it was the fire that destroyed all three buildings at the World Trade Center. We can see for ourselves that the towers appeared to have exploded, starting at the top and going all the way down. Also, high-velocity bursts of debris shot out from 10 to 30 floors below the falling-collapse front. These are sometimes called squibs. At the top of each tower, the debris appeared to shoot upward and outward. Outward as much as as much of the solid structure above turned to dust. This is counterintuitive to the idea that the building was being crushed downward. Some large steel column assemblies were shot outward for hundreds of feet. Many have asked, is this what it looks like when a building is softened or weakened from fire? According to official investigators, each tower fell in less than 12 seconds. And this, this fact can be verified through film footage. In comparison, free fall speed through a vacuum, no air, for something at this height would be 9.2 seconds. And again, the towers fell with no deceleration whatsoever through what should have been the, the path of most resistance. That is through 70 to 90 stories of cold hard steel structure that had supported the towers for 30 years. Given the official story, this violates the law of conservation of momentum, as at the very least, the energy must have been lost through structural deformation, causing uh, deceleration. Other aspects, including huge dust clouds, resembling those from pyroclastic clouds, violated the law of conservation of energy. All three buildings exhibited the characteristics of a demolition event. Each of these buildings experienced a sudden onset of failure. Straight down, symmetrical fall, high-velocity burst of debris, near-free-fall speed, sounds of explosions and flashes of light, relatively small rubble piles, a total collapse, pulveration of concrete and other materials, and huge dust clouds. It's important to realize that the towers were designed for airliner impacts. John Skilling, the structural engineer in charge, said that in the event of airliner impact quote the building structure would still be there this is in the seattle times you can find it online each tower was built around a core of 47 massive steel columns with 236 super strength box columns making up the perimeter wall and the floor decking ran in the staggered arrangement between the core and the perimeter john skilling and his team who designed the buildings won several engineering awards for their achievement There were a number of official investigations into how these buildings fell. Each of these investigations contradicted the previous one. For years, we were told that the floors had pancaked, causing the columns to be unsupported and to fail. But that was disproven by tests done by my former company, Underwriters Laboratories. We were also given a story that the columns failed, and it had nothing to do with the floors. But that wasn't right either. NIST later gave several explanations, but the public has not been convinced by any of these. This is partly because the NIST explanations are not supported by any actual science. The physical test NIST did perform on steel temperatures from samples saved and floor models contradicted the official predetermined conclusion of failure by fire. So they asked what were the steel temperatures and did tests to find out. They found out that the steel samples they saved were exposed to temperatures as high as 250 degrees Celsius, yet their computer model has temperatures of steel up to 800 degrees Celsius. But the steel temperature test might have originally been done in an attempt to downplay the steel uh, temperatures because we know that the samples were selected by the NIST investigator, John Gross who has since been deceptive in his answers to questions about molten metal. Another test was the one UL did on the floor assemblies. The question was, how could the floors have failed or even sagged a great deal? Uh, The answer was, they couldn't have. The physical test showed only three inches after two hours of fire in a furnace, and we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. For other questions, like what were the actual collapse dynamics, NIST made no effort to answer at all. But as we can see, the physical test results produced by NIST and UL were ignored in favor of contradictory computer-generated results. All the NIST reports that now stand as the final official word on what happened to these buildings are based entirely on bits and pieces of computer simulations. To make that non-scientific approach worse, the public's not allowed to see the computer simulations Therefore, there's no way for independent review of the NIST findings. We're simply asked to trust them.
0: You're listening to chemist, research scientist, and author Kevin Ryan. Today's show, the emerging science around the 9-11 World Trade Center destruction. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: One thing we can see is that many of the official investigators were the same people from one false story to the next, And nearly all of them were Department of Defense contractors or employees. It's therefore no surprise that the official investigations or explanations were always focused on supporting the political story in the war on terror. But it is a glaring conflict of interest that Department of Defense contractors led these investigations. Of course, we also heard from the Hearst Corporation through their magazine Popular Mechanics, and the same people showed up for that too, It turns out that NIST and Popular Mechanics also brought in experts in a nanothermite technology, which we'll discuss later. One thing NIST and previous investigations always ignored was the large amount of eyewitness testimony about explosions going off at the World Trade Center. Here are some of those testimonies. You can read about 118 witnesses to explosions at the World Trade Center and a paper by Professor Graham McQueen found at the Journal of 9-11 Studies. Many Many other questions were left unanswered by the official reports. What about the resistance of the floors below? If each floor caused just a half a second of hesitation, we would have needed another 40 seconds for these buildings to fall. What about the observed squibs, which can no longer even be partially explained without the pancake theory, which no longer is supported by the government? What about molten metal observed pouring from the building and pools of molten metal in the rubble? And what about intragranular melting and sulfidation of steel that was reported by an early report from FEMA? Our future is dependent on getting answers to these questions. So I began began questioning the events of 9 11 in 2003 when I recognized that the Iraq war was being built on lies. That realization led me to wonder about when this kind of lying began. If our leaders could lie us into a devastating war, what else were they capable of? This also reminded me that my company had been involved in performing the required fire resistance tests on the World Trade Center steel components, according to our CEO. After I had been investigating what was known about 9-11 at the time, and asking a lot of questions at UL for about a year, NIST came out with this draft report on the towers. This was October 2004. Because this report was in contradiction to the physical test done, I wrote to NIST directly in an attempt to get clarification. I was fired from my job at UL simply for writing a polite and professional letter to NIST. My letter of termination from UL indicated that I had harmed UL's relationship with its client, NIST. Those were difficult times for me and my family. This was uh, before there was the scholars for truth and before architects and engineers for 9-11 truth. But there were some great people who had already come before me, and I... Looking back, I wish I could have done more right away. But it took me another nine months to find a good job, and that was a top priority. During this time, I was able to learn more about 9-11. And like most people, the more I learned, the more concerned I became. At about the same time I got my new job in August 2005, I also got an uplifting message from my uh, colleague David Griffin, who said, in case uh, there are days in which you wonder if your act made any difference, take a look at this if you haven't already seen it. He was referring to a rare mainstream article that covered 9-11 truth in my story. Griffin went on to say, also a physicist named Stephen Jones at BYU just told me that it was your letter that got him started. I think he'll be writing. I know that 10 months later, Stephen, I, Stephen Jones and I were co-editing a journal, the Journal of 9-11 Studies. Unfortunately, Steve also lost his job for speaking out about 9-11. I went on to write essays and give presentations around the country. Some of my essays have been published in books. Steve and I, along with a growing number of scientists now around the world, have also begun publishing scientific articles in mainstream journals. We make no money from any of this. In fact, we lose money in addition to having lost our jobs. So why... Do we do it? Good question. Here are some of the reasons that I've heard from others, and all of these motivate me as well. But it's the last one that I'd like to focus on just for a minute. In my lifetime, I've not seen another greater opportunity for people to recognize the root causes of human problems. Greed, apathy, and self-deception are behind 9-11, just as these common traits are behind most problems that we face individually and as a society. Through the long-ignored truth of 9-11, we can make a great difference in our lives and the lives of future generations. The truth that we have been terribly deceived and that we have deceived ourselves can help billions of people simultaneously take a step forward if we dare to do so. We can learn about how the deceit of 9-11 happened and how similar deceptions have happened many times before and will again unless we stop it. We can learn and understand ourselves through 9-11 in a way that produces lasting positive change in our world. With that in mind, we'll get back to the World Trade Center. My former employee UL not only tested the steel components used in Building 7, as the NIST report indicates, but it's a non-controversial fact that UL tested the steel components used in the towers as well to meet the 1968 New York City fire code. That meant that the column assemblies had to withstand three hours of intense fire and the floor assemblies had to withstand two hours of intense fire in a test furnace. Here's the fellow that told me about it, Loring Knobloch, who was the CEO when I worked there. He uh, later wrote to me and a few others saying we tested the steel with all the required fireproofing on and it did beautifully. He went on to talk about the sample itself and the code requirements. But this fact was already well known due to a letter sent to the New York Times in 2002 from UL's fire protection manager, Tom Chapin, who I was in contact with as well. Tom wrote, uh, the World Trade Center stood for almost an hour after withstanding conditions well beyond those experienced in a typical fire, in his estimation. In that time, thousands of people escaped with their lives. ASTM E-119 and UL's testing procedures helped make that possible. Actually, one tower stood for almost an hour, and the other stood for an hour and 42 minutes. But the point is that UL took uh, credit publicly for the fire resistance testing. The testing that Loring and Tom were referring to was done in the mid-1960s before any of us worked there. When I spoke about it and allowed my letter to, to NIST to become public, UL responded by quickly telling reporters that there was, quote, no evidence that any company had tested the World Trade Center steel components. I later discovered that UL tested and certified the fireproofing as well, as stated by the president of the company that manufactured the fireproofing. Considering that UL also served as the Port Authority's consultant during the fireproofing upgrades over the years, UL was most responsible for the fire resistance, or lack thereof, of the World Trade Center towers and Building 7, But UL later participated in the NIST World Trade Center investigation, which is a clear conflict of interest. As mentioned earlier in 2004, UL and NIST built and tested exact replicas of World Trade Center floor assemblies. Here's a photo of one of those floor assemblies after the test. This floor assembly was tested for fire resistance according to the standard method ASTM E119. During this test, it was held in a furnace at an average temperature over 1,000 degrees Celsius for a period of two hours. You can see the slight effect. The mid-sections of the assembly sagged a few inches, but the frame was not damaged, and the floor held its load without failure. The weight loaded was twice as great as what was known to have existed at the World Trade Center. These experiments were performed on four separate models, all of which had less fireproofing than the World Trade Center floors. As I said, I was fired by UL just three months after these tests for pointing out that these and other tests had actually disproved the official story, which at the time was the pancake theory and the idea that huge quantities of steel had softened. After I was fired, NIST began having closed-door meetings. Seven months later, they published a new story, having replaced the word softened with weakened but still exaggerating the floor sagging in the extreme. The truth is that metal had actually melted at the World Trade Center. And we know that could not have happened from jet fuel and office fires. On the left here, you see molten metal pouring from the South Tower and being pulled from the debris pile at ground zero. NIST said that they found no evidence of molten metal. But they said that if molten metal had been present, it would have had to have been aluminum from the plane. This was not the case. As you can see from these photographs, on the right you see the difference between molten iron steel, which is yellow-orange, and molten aluminum, which is silvery-gray when poured in the daylight. There were also many eyewitness testimonies to molten metal. Here are a few examples professional people who spoke very clearly about it. But NIST ignored all of this, and the many more witnesses to molten metal. There were also samples of corroded steel, and steel that had been thinned to razor sharpness. In some cases, there were inexplicable holes in the steel. The fire engineering professors who found these samples could not come up with an explanation for it. They also could not explain the sulfidation of the steel. That is, the steel had been chemically changed at the microstructural level in ways that indicated a chemical eutectic mixture had been achieved between sulfur, iron, and oxygen, causing the steel to melt. So they talked about one-inch columns being reduced to half-inch thickness, some curled like a paper scroll, gaping holes, a Swiss cheese appearance, and severe corrosion.
0: You're listening to chemist, research scientist, and author Kevin Ryan. Today's show, the emerging science around the 9-11 World Trade Center destruction. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: My colleagues and I were very interested in these findings, and we began answering some of these questions with our first mainstream article to challenge the official line about the World Trade Center. This was called... 14 Points of Agreement with Official Government Reports on the World Trade Center Destruction. It was published in the Open Civil Engineering Journal. The paper covered 14 points in which independent investigators agreed with the official reports, but it also highlighted how this agreement led to inevitable problems with the official story. One of the points of agreement was that all three buildings fell at near free-fall speed. One problem with the official story in this regard is that if there was impact between an upper and lower section, this would cause energy to be transferred and lost through deformations and structural breakage, which should slow the fall. But there was no deceleration or slowing at all. The upper section, which appeared to be nothing but steel and dust, fell freely in each case, Another point of agreement was that the fires in any given area were of short duration. As I I mentioned earlier, NIST finally admitted that the fire load in these buildings would support only 20 minutes of fire in a given area before migrating to a fresh fuel source. In the towers, this meant that to support the fire-based story, NIST had to claim that the fires migrated around the core of the building over a period of time. For the north tower... This migration time lasted one full hour, according to NIST, before the fire had migrated from the north side of the building around the core to the south side of the, the building where the quote collapse initiation occurred. This left less than 45 minutes of fire time on the south wall where the fires would have migrated together to come together. So NIST claimed that the south wall bowed inwards there. And that's what caused these these office fires heated up so hot, they caused the columns to bow inward, on the South Wall only. So the question is, what about the East and West Walls, which saw as much, at least as much, fire time as the South Wall? Why didn't they show any signs of bowing? Could it be that something else was happening at the South Wall? That leads to the question of how these fires could have created molten metal In such short times, if they were fed by only office furnishings, the answer is they could not. With Stephen Jones in the lead, we began to explain these phenomena by examining the World Trade Center dust for clues. And we found that there was much to be discovered there. After the destruction of the World Trade Center buildings, a thick layer of dust covered all of Manhattan. In some places, it was several inches deep. Looking through this dust, we found microspheres of several kinds. Some were metallic and some were semi transparent. A paper of the Journal of 9 11 Studies on extremely high temperatures at the World Trade Center describes the analyses performed on these microspheres. Other investigators had previously found the same thing. This included a company called RJ Lee that worked for the Deutsche Bank on a project to describe the dust covering ground zero. R.J. Lee published a report saying that various metals had melted during the World Trade Center events, producing spherical particles through surface tension. This report also said that other particles found demonstrated that aluminosilicates and lead had actually evaporated. The point of the R.J. Lee report was simply that these particles were not typical of building dust, but came from the destruction of the World Trade Center buildings. The US Geological Survey also found similar particles. The report by USGS said that silicate spheres and iron-rich microspheres were in abundance in the dust. No explanation was given for how these spheres had formed, but it's clear that these materials had to have been molten at some point in, in order to assume their spherical shape. Some members of our team petitioned the USGS for more information through a Freedom of Information Act request. We received unpublished findings of molybdenum microspheres that USGS had tested extensively but not reported. This meant that molybdenum had been in a molten state at the World Trade Center. So why are these findings important? The reason is that the temperatures required to melt iron and molybdenum and to vaporize lead and aluminosilicates cannot possibly have occurred at the World Trade Center unless some highly exothermic process, much more intense than an office fire, was present. Even the gas temperatures at the World Trade Center fires, at least those reported by official investigators, were much lower than what would have been needed to melt or evaporate these materials. The temperatures of the steel and other solid materials in the buildings would have been even lower than the gas temperatures, and therefore these materials could never have melted or evaporated. Temperatures lower than 1,000 degrees Celsius cannot begin to explain the evidence found by the R.J. Lee Company, the USGS, and corroborated by our team. We then began looking at other evidence, including the environmental data. Another mainstream scientific paper came from this, a paper called Environmental Anomalies at the World Trade Center, Evidence for Energetic Materials which was published at the Springer Journal, uh, The Environmentalist. Like all of our papers, this is available free of charge online. Some of the unanswered questions about what happened related to unexplained phenomena at Ground Zero. For example, the fires that raged in the debris pile went on for months, despite all the dust and the monumental efforts to put them out, including millions of gallons of water that were sprayed into the debris pile, And a chemical fire suppressant pumped into the piles that had no effect. Explosions were also reported throughout the pile. In some cases, these explosions were followed by visible white dust clouds. We submitted another FOIA request, this time to the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, and received a response. In reviewing these data, we noticed that the EPA results of air emission testing exhibited some startling spikes in detection of certain analytes. Here we see five volatile organic chemicals, or VOCs, spiked in unison on specific dates during October and November 2001 at Ground Zero. These detections were extremely high and uneven relative to those from known structure fires and suggested that the fires and explosions might be from unusual energetic events happening within the pile. Other chemicals also showed spikes on specific dates in the environmental results. There were spikes in iron, aluminum, and compounds of silicon and sulfur. There were spikes in rare metals like vanadium. The presence of 1,3-diphenopropane, or 1,3-DPP, was described by the EPA in unusual terms. EPA said that they had never seen this chemical before, despite having monitored many structure fires. They also said that the levels of this chemical, quote, dwarfed all others. Aerosol data collected by the University of California, Davis near Ground Zero in October 2001 exhibited the same kinds of spikes. Here we see unexplained spikes in iron, aluminum, and compounds of silicon. The UC Davis team stated that they encountered the following problems. They said, we see fine, very fine aerosols, typical of combustion temperatures, far higher than what they expected at the World Trade Center. We see some elements abundantly and others hardly at all, despite similar abundances in the dust. We see organic species in the very fine mode that would not survive high temperatures. The conclusion of our environmental paper was that extremely violent incendiary events had occurred on specific dates at ground zero that resulted in the emission of toxic VOCs and the components of an energetic aluminothermic material. What are aluminothermic materials? The most common term for an aluminothermic material is called thermite. This is a chemical mixture of a metal oxide and aluminum powder that when ignited exhibits what is called a thermite reaction. Iron oxide is typically the, the metal oxide involved. Notice the reddish color here on the left of the thermite mixture, and it comes from the iron oxide. When ignited, the thermite reaction proceeds very energetically, releasing a huge amount of energy as aluminum oxide, which comes off as white dust oftentimes, and molten metal are formed as products. Other metal oxides can be used, like vanadium oxide and molybdenum oxide, giving molten vanadium or molten molybdenum respectively. A thermite reaction is highly exothermic has been utilized in the past for purposes of melting and cutting steel. Uh, it was used for welding railroad ties, for example. And more recently, it's used for anti-tank grenades. Additives are sometimes included, like barium nitrate or potassium permanganate. Sulfur is often present in these additives also. And the mixture is then referred to as a thermate when sulfur is there. It's also actually been patented for demolition, which I'll mention briefly later. The thermite reaction over the last 15 to 20 years has been harnessed on the nanoscale, vastly increasing the energy release and the rate of release. These are called energetic nanocomposites, nanothermites, term we use, or superthermites. The reason they're so much more powerful is that the surface area per volume of the reactants is much higher. Or in other words, the reaction front is greater. Therefore, the reaction can proceed much faster, releasing more energy more quickly. So nanothermites are those in which one or more components are on the scale of 10 to 100 nanometers. And they ignite at a lower temperature, and they are explosive. You can see the curves here on the right for the relationship between particle size and reaction rate, and therefore energy and density. These nanothermites are often made by the sol-gel method, which uh, is where components are mixed in solution and then dried later. Silicon-containing materials are added to form a structural base in which the iron oxide and aluminum can distribute evenly. The silicon is often part of a fluorinated silane, which means fluorine and carbon are present as well. The organic portion of the resulting mixture allows for gases to be produced during the reaction, which expand rapidly and create much more explosive effects. So when gases are involved, they do what's called pressure-volume work. They blow up. The compound 1,3-DPP, mentioned earlier in the environmental data, is sometimes used to functionalize similar nanocomposites, That is, the pore size of silica microstructures is better controlled using 1,3-DPP. In any case, sol-gel nanothermites are produced in such a way that they can be used as coatings, as this quote from a Lawrence Livermore article says. The reason that coatings are interesting, one reason they're interesting, is that the areas of jet plane impact and fire in the World Trade Center towers matched very well with the areas of fireproofing upgrades in the years just before 9-11. The upgraded fireproofing was applied via a coating process to columns and floor deckings in the buildings. As you can see from this comparative diagram, the floors match up exactly for the North Tower and somewhat well for the South Tower as well. Of course, while the upgrades were going on, the floors were off-limits, you would assume, to most people, and a number of activities could have been accomplished relative to implementation of a demolition plan. The tenants in this area had all made other structural modifications in the exact areas of impact, according to NIST, and it's likely that more than one type of explosive was used in the destruction of these buildings. So these activities, including the fireproofing upgrades and other modifications reported by NIST, should be examined.
0: (laughs) You're listening to chemist, research scientist, and author Kevin Ryan. Today's show, the emerging science around the 9-11 World Trade Center destruction. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter.
1: A question that often arises is, who could have placed explosives in the World Trade Center buildings? For Building 7, it's not difficult to believe with the secretive and powerful tenants that occupied the building that explosives could have been planted without detection. But what about the towers? The answer is that the people who had thorough access to the towers included tenants, management, and security companies and other contractors. On closer examination, we see that the tenants in the impact zones were companies that had access to explosives, were also secretive, and appeared to have benefited from the attacks. Some of the tenants, like J. Paul Bremer of Marsh, who you may remember as the Iraq governor after uh, 2003, uh, was a tenant of the building. He was also a director of a company that had patented a thermite demolition device in 1996. Others, like Baseline Financial and the Washington Group, were associated with the Department of Energy and the National Laboratories that developed nanothermites in the 1990s. Another interesting aspect of these impact zone tenants in the floors where other explosives might have been placed is that their occupancy produced this crisscross pattern of consolidated control of the floors in question, reducing the numbers of people who might have been involved. Each line in this diagram shows floors that were controlled by the same company. But the security plan for the World Trade Center and the companies involved with it are also quite surprising. The company that developed the security plan after the 1993 World Trade Center bombing was Kroll. It's a company that's sometimes called the CIA of Wall Street. Kroll had earlier developed expert knowledge of terrorism and terrorist financing. Kroll's plan for the World Trade Center was implemented over a period of years by four companies controlled by very powerful people. Many of those people benefited from the attacks. All four of the security implementation companies had previously done significant work in Saudi Arabia. Just a few months before the attacks, the World Trade Center complex was taken over by Larry Silverstein, a man who made his fortune uh, running strip clubs. Lucky Larry, he's called, received a multi-billion dollar insurance payment as a result of the attacks. Another incredible thing to notice is that the world's leading experts on al-Qaeda and its terrorist network were right there in New York City, at the World Trade Center, on 9-11. This included Mayor Rudy Giuliani, who had investigated the terrorist financing organization called BCCI, and who later worked for a firm that represented BCCI, and also John O'Neill of the FBI, who had investigated every major terrorist attack by al-Qaeda. You can find out more about these companies and characters by doing a web search for my essays on demolition access to the World Trade Center towers. Getting back to the science, we worked to obtain and analyze more World Trade Center dust samples. My colleague Stephen Jones first noticed that these red, gray, chip-like materials could be extracted from the dust with a magnet. Here you see some photographs of the dust before extraction on the left and the particles extracted with a magnet on the right. Some red chips are seen there, as well as many metallic spheres. Other investigators, including myself, tried to replicate Jones' findings and began to see these red chips, which sometimes included a gray layer as well. The chips have now been isolated from dust samples in several laboratories around the world. Metallic spheres are sometimes attached to the chips and sometimes they appear as if they had emanated from the side of the chip. I've made some sol-gel nanothermites myself and compared them to the red chips we've seen. Here you can see some images from that comparison and an ignition photo. The red chip compares well in terms of color to the nanothermite formulation. That's not yet fully dried. This formulation comes from Saddle, a scientist at Lawrence Livermore. Our latest paper was published in the Open Journal of Chemical Physics. And it's called Active Thermitic Material Discovered in Dust from the 9-11 World Trade Center Catastrophe. And it breaks new ground in this area by characterizing the red-grey chips using several analytical techniques. The first author is Dr. Niels Herrett of the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. He's an expert in nanochemistry and has many uh, many publications. This year he's got articles in Langmuir and the Journal of American Chemical Society and others. The the second author is Jeffrey Farrar of of Brigham Young University. Dr. Farrar runs the physics laboratories at BYU, and he's an expert at the analytical techniques used in this paper. We started with four samples of World Trade Center dust, collected by independent samplers at various points around Manhattan. You can see the sampling sites on the map here. We received signed affidavits from each sample collector, describing the collection date, time, and process. And as an old environmental laboratory manager, I can tell you it's every bit as uh, acceptable as the chain of custody used for environmental samples. Analytical techniques used for this paper are listed here. First, the chip-like particles were extracted using a magnet. Photomicrographs were obtained for each. And then scanning electron microscopy, x-ray energy dispersive spectroscopy, and differential scanning calorimetry techniques were used to characterize the chips. Here are some of the photomicrographs of red-gray chips found in the samples used for this new paper. Notice the similar appearance of each. We soaked some of the red-gray chips in a solvent as well called methyl ethyl ketone, which is sometimes used to dissolve paint. We also used a control sample of paint in order to test the idea that the red-gray chips were a form of paint. The results were that the paint chip dissolved and the red-gray chips did not. Instead, the red part of the red-gray chips swelled up and the gray side was essentially unaffected. Through additional SEM and XEDS work, we saw that there was segregation of aluminum from other components of the swollen chips. The carbon portion appeared to wash away, and the aluminum appeared to be in the elemental form. The silicon and and oxygen stayed together, suggesting that these elements were chemically bound. Here's a backscattered electron imaging map that shows the distribution of elements in the red layer of one sample. So you kind of see how the elements are distributed in the red part of these chips. We then ignited some of these chips with an acetylene torch. We saw charred remains and small metallic spheres form. The XEDS chemical fingerprint of these spheres matched with spheres formed from the ignition of commercial thermite. And also matched with spheres found throughout the World Trade Center dust. At the top here, you can see the sphere formed from the red-gray chip and its XEDS spectrum. And at the bottom, you can see a World Trade Center dust sphere with an XEDS spectrum. And the spectrum match. They're a little shifted, but you can see the peaks all line up in the same way. Here are some overlaid traces from the DSC, or the Differential Scanning Calorimeter. At the top, you can see the trace from a red-gray chip that was heated slowly in the calorimeter while the energy absorbed and released was measured. A sharp spike in energy release is seen at about 430 degrees Celsius. Below that is the trace of a known nanothermite produced by scientists at Lawrence Livermore. This is one of the many forms of uh, nanothermite that can be made, but you can see that the exothermic spike occurs at a comparable temperature. With this graph, we show that the energy released per per unit mass of red-gray chips is on par with the energy released per unit mass for high explosives. Note that we included the the gray part of the red-gray chips in this calculation, so the the red part is underestimated in terms of its energy per unit mass. The conclusions of our new paper are that red-gray chips are scattered throughout the World Trade Center dust. The red part of these chips is composed of nanometer scale, intimately mixed iron oxide, elemental aluminum, silicon oxide, and an unidentified carbon compound. These chips ignite, releasing energy on the scale of high explosives. The ignition temperature matches closely with nanothermite. Metallic spheres form on the ignition residue. The metallic spheres have the same XEDS chemical fingerprint as spheres from known thermite reactions. So we conclude that these red-gray chips are active nanothermite throughout the World Trade Center dust. And the question then becomes, how did they get there? Our new findings support a growing body of evidence for the presence of explosives at the World Trade Center, which now includes the fact that the fires could not be put out that all three World Trade Center buildings exhibited the characteristics of demolition, the fact that there were many witnesses to explosions, the photographs and witness testimony of molten metal and white clouds, extremely high temperatures, evidenced by metallic and other microspheres, evaporated metals and silicates, the unusual spikes in volatile organic chemical emissions suggesting abrupt violent fires, and other unusual species in the environmental monitoring data, and analytical data now that confirm the presence of nanothermite in the World Trade Center dust. Future studies, some of them already in the works, include analysis of the red chips by FTIR, Fourier transform infrared analysis, Mossbauer spectroscopy, and tests for other explosives. We're also preparing nanothermites. And uh, by doing so, we hope to uh, compare them to the red-gray chips and narrow down the source of the nanothermite, the exact formulation and the source. Note also that World Trade Center primer paint samples have now been obtained and analyzed. The XEDS spectra is quite different. The, the primer paint includes zinc, which is important, and the red chips do not. But NIST had already tested this theory They had done this paint test for steel temperatures and heated up the World Trade Center primer paint above 600 degrees Celsius, and of course it doesn't ignite or explode, which is a good thing. Here are some photos of residues from red-gray chip ignitions on the left, and a comparison with photos of residues from known nanothermite ignitions on the right, And you can notice the presence of metallic spheres and vesicular formations, meaning they're like bubbling up in both. So the comparisons have begun in this case. Here are some spectral comparisons by Fourier Transform Infrared Spectroscopy, or FTIR. In each case, a red-grade chip from the World Trade Center dust is compared to a known nanothermite formulation. As we progress in these comparisons, we hope to determine very specifically the exact formulation used. In time, we might have be able to identify the exact location of manufacture of nanothermites found in the World Trade Center dust. Thank you mu- very much for listening today. Thank you. So-
0: listening to kevin ryan today's show has been the emerging science around the 9-11 world trade center destruction kevin ryan works as a chemistry laboratory manager in bloomington indiana he is the former site manager for environmental health laboratories in south bend indiana a division of underwriters laboratories or ul Kevin Ryan is co-editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies, which publishes peer-reviewed research, and a founding member of Scholars for 9-11 Truth and Justice. He is the co-author of a peer-reviewed article published in the April 2009 edition of the Open Chemical Physics Journal entitled, Active Thermitic Material Discovered in the Dust from the 9-11 World Trade Center Catastrophe. He has co authored several books and peer reviewed scientific articles on the subject. Visit www.journalof911studies.com. That's Journal of the Numbers 911studies.com. Many of his articles can be found at www.ultruth.com. That's ULTRUTH.com. Thanks to Hamook from 911. TV.org For today's audio, Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaramako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Or email me at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter. Hey, hey. Knows what's going down. hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G, and our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying?
1: Now, the question is are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of that are written on the walls of life Then universally we will stand And divided we will fall Because love conquers all You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls Wake up and take control of your own cypher And be on the lookout for the spirit sniper Trying to steal your life You know what I'm saying? Look what inside yourself For peace, Give thanks, live life, and release You dig me? got me